3: of man. Memory of
0: our past is always a significant part of our present identity. It shapes who we are. Some people and events are chosen to be publicly commemorated and celebrated, while others are intentionally erased. Who in our past we raise up and who we condemn has major bearing on who we are today and what our future may look like. Official memory in Western Europe, for example, directly confronts its ugly fascist past. There's widespread agreement that schoolchildren must learn about the horrible realities to carry freedom and anti-fascism forward. But what about Spain? What about its fascist past? Well, there's the well-remembered gag by Chevy Chase on Saturday Night Live back in 1975 when he reassures the audience that Franco is still dead. The point being made is that the right-wing dictator held on to power for some 40 years and the world needed reassurance that he really was dead and gone at last. But with the new and continued rise of right-wing nationalism throughout Europe, the memory of Franco and Francoism is sharing in a revival. While many agree Spain has yet to fully confront its past, the evil that was done in the Spanish Civil War, which destroyed a republic and installed a violent fascist uh, government. Some in Spain today are actively determined to revise and distort history to not only resuscitate, but elevate the memory of Franco to a new status of official reverence for him. That's kind of scary stuff. With us today, is Sebastian Faber, professor and chair of uh, Hispanic Studies at Oberlin College, author of the new book, memory battles, and the Spanish Civil War. He's written a new article, Spain digs up its past, a controversial exhumation and a battle over national identity. Sebastian Faber, thanks so much for being with us once again on Keeping Democracy Alive. Please tell us about the new and continuing controversy regarding the burial place of General Franco. What what triggered it?
2: Well, what, what really triggered it was uh, the unexpected change in government in Spain. In June, uh, thanks to a vote of no confidence, the conservative prime minister Mariano Rajoy was ousted, and in his place uh, was installed a socialist prime minister, uh, Pedro Sánchez, who um, who had already in the year or so before that um, hinted that he was ready to revise Spain's relationship to its past and that he would like to remove the remains of the former dictator from his current burial place. So when he came to power um, unexpectedly in June, uh, that opened the, uh, the road to making this actually happen. So then in, in a fairly quick succession, they, uh, the government passed a series of votes and measures that would allow the government to exhume the dictator from the Valley of the Fallen, this Valley of the Fallen is, is this huge yeah. monument outside of Madrid that was built over about 20 years' time by the Franco regime with uh, the labor of political prisoners, among other, others, mm-hmm. that was really meant as a monument for those who had fallen, quote, for God in the fatherland, who had fallen on the nationalist side in the Spanish Civil War, who had helped Franco win. And um, that monument was, was inaugurated in 1959, Um, and uh, centrally buried in there was the founder of the Spanish Fascist Party, José Antonio Primo de Rivera. And then when Franco died in November 1975, it was decided that he should be buried there as well. And he has been buried there next to José Antonio since 1975. And remarkably, nothing really has changed in the setup and organization and look and even ownership of the Valley of the Fallen. It's, It's run by a... Uh, a monastic order which, which celebrates Mass in, in the space, which is really a large church hewn out into live granite. And um, so it's, it's kind of strange when you think about it that um, Spain, which transitioned to democracy in the late 70s, never reformed or reshaped or did anything with this huge, which is the largest fascist monument in, in Western Europe. Mm. Um, So, uh, from the idea that that is really a strange thing, that nothing has happened there, the Spanish government this past summer started to say, look, we have to do something with this. This wasn't the first time in 2011, during the previous socialist government, a committee of experts uh, already did a fairly extensive study and published a report which recommended um, that the valley be be re-signified and that Franco's remains be removed. What happened then? But after that is that the conservatives took over and didn't do anything with that report. So now that the new socialist prime minister has come into power, he is ready to do something with that report. And that's why he proposed to remove Franco from there. The problem is a little bit that uh, it's a strange time to do this in Europe because, as you said, um, radical right-wing movements have been on the rise. And in other countries, including France and Germany, Um, They have proposed a new relationship to uh, the past, that that past that Europe for a long time had sort of repudiated. For example, the Nazi and fascist past. So just to give you one example, the new radical right-wing party in Germany that's called AFD, the Alternative for Germany, has been saying things like, It's about time we stop being ashamed about our own past, and we as Germans should also be allowed to be proud of our nation and its history, in which they even include the Nazi period. So they Mm. try to find um, sources of pride in the Nazi period. In Spain, that kind of period of shame, um, uh, the period of sort of working through the past, never actually Mm -hmm. occurred. Mm -hmm. But in Spain now, too, there's a new radical right-wing party, Vox, B-O-X, which um, was initially marginal, but has, is now growing rather quickly. Mm. Which is also saying we should be proud of Francoism, and Franco did many good things that that we should celebrate. Um, so the the sort of fringe of of nostalgic Francoists that would go every year to the Valley of the Fallen to celebrate Franco is now growing with new um, enthusiasm from from young people as well, and this is in part due. To the um, to the conflict around Catalonia that that broke right. out last year, um, when Catalonia voted to become uh, independent, which has sort of um, fanned the flames of a Spanish nationalism, which is right wing, um, has some imperial nostalgia attached to it, um, is flag waving, is anti immigrant, and is um, fairly um, enthusiastic about Franco's legacy.
0: Wow, interesting stuff. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are Keeping Democracy Alive with your help, dear listener. Our guest today is Sebastian Faber. We're talking about uh, Spain digs up its past, a uh, what they're doing, that sort of uh, rebirth of Franco, who's technically still dead. Franco was known as a staunch ally of the United States, basically because he was anti-communist. He called himself the Sentinel of the West, But what about the realities of that long Franco era? Your article cites some rather astounding numbers regarding his crackdown on freedom in Spain. What was so bad about Franco? What is it important that people uh, learn about?
2: Um, Well, Franco Franco came to power in 1939 when he won the Spanish Civil War, uh, actually less than half a year before the outbreak of World War II. He'd come to power... Um, thanks in large part to the military support of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Um, Nazi Germany famously used the Spanish Civil War to practice some of the tactics that it would later apply after invading Poland and the outbreak of World War II, um, such as um, city bombings, um, like the, the, the bombing of Guernica that inspired the famous painting by Picasso, famously tried out... Uh, it was famously perpetrated by the German Condor Legion by the same planes and the very same pilots that in the fall of '39, would bomb Warsaw, for example. Right? So there's a strong connection between Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, the Axis, and Franco-Spain. Franco officially remained neutral during World War II, which didn't prevent him from mm. being uh, friends with Hitler and continuing a good relationship at least halfway through the war with Nazi Germany. It also did not prevent him from cracking down severely on any form of political dissidence in Spain. So hundreds of thousands of Spaniards passed through concentration camps. About 20,000 were executed following fairly sham uh, military Mm -hmm. trials. Um, And throughout the dictatorship, which lasted until his death in 1975, um, Franco imposed a dictatorial military rule in which uh, political parties were forbidden, uh, in which there was a, a strong censorship, in which political dissidents were imprisoned or otherwise persecuted, and, um, and uh, in which women had very few rights, all kinds of features that we associate with conservative military dictatorships. It's true that, in, especially starting in the 60s, uh, Francoism did allow Spain to undergo an economic modernization um, spurred in part by the um, expansion of industry in the North and in large part by the, by mass tourism. But despite this economic modernization, there was very little political modernization until after Franco's death. Now the the, the big debate in Spain currently is how to approach the legacy of Francoism. And there's different schools of thought. One, the right-wing school of thought says, well, Uh, Franco, by fighting and winning the civil war, saved, quote-unquote, saved Spain from revolution or from communism or from anarchism. And we should thank him for that. And then Franco also modernized Spain and made it what it is today. And therefore, even the birth of Spanish democracy in the late 70s after Franco's death is really actually due to Francoism. There's another school of thought that says, no, Franco... Uh, the, the, the the Franco's attempted coup in 1936 at the start of the Civil War meant the end of the second Spanish Republic which had tried to modernize Spain and make it a modern European secular country and Franco's 40-year dictatorship put a stop to Spain's modernization and um, its legacy is still um, very obvious in Spain and, and especially in negative ways so all the um, dysfunctions of Spain's political system, of the political class, of the court system, even of the university system, many of those, these people say, can be traced back to the structures and practices put in place by Franco.
0: So the it, it's, it's good to learn that history, it's good to know history, and to bury history is never a good thing. It's, it's you know, memory it makes up who we are now. So what, what groups are behind this resurgence of public admiration for Franco? And again, I guess a lot of this was sparked unintentionally by the uh, uh, independence movement of Catalonia, which uh, ha- has done really well. And just sort of like uh, to every action, there is uh, a reaction. And the reaction, they are reactionary, is to uh, become much more nationalistic. You mentioned Vox which I, in Latin means voice, what, else, what other groups are behind this resurgence of admiration for Franco?
2: Well, there's, there's, I, th- I think you can think of, about it as, as there are two sides to it. One is the international um, side where the rise of Trump and the rise of other, what we can think of as right-wing nationalist leaders, has led to a resurgence of, of rabid nationalism, anti-immigrant discourse, um, a sort of um, a disdain for, for the, the basic structures, the basic Republican structures of, of, of democracy, such as the, the independence of judiciary and the, um, the, the parliamentary system. All those things, like the, the bringing all those things into discredit is a feature that many of these new right-wing leaders or right-wing politicians share, right? Whether it's Trump or Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, or uh, Orbán in Hungary, right, right. Um, or politicians like Wilders in in Holland. So the um, this extreme Spanish, the new radical Spanish right, this party box, shares many of those features. At the same time, that books that movement has real Spanish roots in um, kind of the what was long the right wing fringe of the mainstream conservative party, the Partido Popular. And one of the points I try to make in the article in Foreign Affairs that you cited is that um, it seemed for for a long time that Spain um, had escaped this new fashion of radical right-wing anti-immigrant movements. The point I'm making is that it's not true that Spain didn't have a radical right of that kind. It's just that for a long time it felt more or less at home in the mainstream conservative party. Whereas in other European countries, the mainstream conservative parties did not tolerate that kind of radical uh-huh. rhetoric in their midst. So therefore, in the other European countries, um, these right-wing parties uh, were founded earlier. Spain, So Spain came late to, um, to the to fashion, it seems, but in fact, mm. the ideology had been present for a long time.
0: So what, what about the leaders of the European Union? They've been certainly having some tough times lately with, with Brexit and all. How, how are they reacting? What's the sense from uh, leaders of the European Union to uh, this rise of the uh, radical right in Spain?
2: Um, well, this, this, the European Parliament uh, recent, um, last month adopted a resolution condemning all forms of neo-fascism, um, in which they explicitly included uh, Spanish um, phenomena uh, they, for example, singled out the Francisco Franco Foundation, which is a foundation that has been in existence since Franco's death in Spain that explicitly is dedicated to um, to uh, promoting and, and perpetuating the uh, legacy and ideology of, of Franco. This foundation was uh, received uh, government funds until 2004 and is still legal in Spain. Um, in Spain, by the way... Um, exalting or extolling fascist ideologies is not illegal, is, is not punished in the criminal code, unlike, for example, Germany or Holland or, or France, where um, the law is much stricter about um, about promoting uh, forms of neo-fascism or neo-Nazism. In Spain, that's not the case. So the European Parliament, when it adopted resolution, called on Spain to make the Franco Foundation actually illegal and to... And to, to um, tighten its legal code and make it less tolerant of, of not just right-wing violence, but right-wing discourse. Um, that said, uh, I, I think it's, it's, there's a, it's, it's a little bit too easy to single out Spain as a country that has a hard time with its own um, uh, repressive past. Um, it, it's true that, for example, Spain still doesn't have a museum of the Civil War, and it's true that uh, like, I, like we said in the beginning, Franco is still buried in this massive monument that hasn't changed. But even in the United States, uh, the United States has never fully come to terms with its Civil War and the legacy of that. And I think there are very interesting parallels mm-hmm. to be made between what we saw happening in, um, in in the South here, with regards to the let's say the monument, uh, the Federalist monument, uh, the Confederate monument. Um, in the South and things that are going on in Spain now. So there are still, like, if if as soon as um, a government or or particular organizations call for the removal of statues or the changing of monuments because of what they represent politically, protests appear, comes out, right? And mm -hmm. and, uh, the ugly face of the extreme right um, comes out into the open.
0: Yes, absolutely. And certainly has happened here as well. So what did the new Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, uh, propose relative to the memory of the Civil War? What was what was new and you know, which apparently fired up the nationalist reaction?
2: Yeah, so the, the um, Spain adopted a law dealing with the legacy of Francoism to some extent in two thousand seven. And what Sanchez is proposing is basically an an extension or a um Intensification of some of the measures that were included in the, in the law from 2007. Uh, among other things, um, in 2007, that law said that family members looking for the remains of loved ones that are still buried in, in um, unmarked mass graves throughout the country, of which there are tens of thousands of those of those remains. Uh, the 2007 law that said that they had the right to search. Um, the, for their loved ones, and it said that the Spanish state, the government, would provide subsidies to help them with that. Okay. What Sanchez wants to do is to actually um, adhere much more to international treaties that Spain has signed, which says that in the case of forced disappearances, it is the state's job to actually locate and exhume uh, remains, not just, and not just give some money to do that to the family members, for example. Uh, another big thing is, is, like we said in the beginning, the removal of Franco's remains mm-hmm. from the Valley of the Fallen. Another big issue is what to do with the jurisprudence um, coming out of the Franco uh, period. Mm-hmm. As under the Franco regime, political dissidence was criminalized so that uh, your belonging or having belonged to, let's say, a trade union was a criminal offense that can be, could be tried in court. Um, one of the most perverse... Um, legal structures Franco put in place was that to state that anybody who had not supported his attempted coup in July 1936 so he had sided with the legitimate government and defended the legitimate government of the republic. Anybody who had not sided with the coup was therefore a traitor to Spain and could be tried for treason
3: Mm.
2: which of course is a a kind of perverse kind of inversion of of what actually happened. As a result though, um, thousands of of Spaniards, um, many of whom have already died, of course,
3: sure.
2: were tried and found guilty of heinous crimes, such as treason. Uh, those laws, those those, those uh-huh. uh, convictions were never removed from the books, so that currently there's many Spaniards whose parents or grandparents are listed, uh, at, 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 are still at, known as convicted uh, traitors or, or mm-hmm. other, um, uh, other other terms like that. But these family members would very much like to see us to have that record cleared. And and um, so the annulment of those convictions from the Franco period is definitely something that's on the agenda. What makes this complicated is um, that, of course, as soon as you annul a conviction, you kind of open the door toward um, claims for reparation, right? If, mm. if the state acknowledges that it has um, un- unjustly convicted someone, sure. then they or their family member can mm. say, well, then I'm going to sue and, and ask for uh, some kind of damages. Wow! So that that is what what has held the government <sighs> back so far—the fear for for uh, claims for reparations, because after all, among the many things that the Franco regime did was to actually expropriate many many families and um, uh, and and enrich itself tremendously. Franco himself enriched, uh, Franco enriched himself, him, himself enormously during the war and after. Uh, but so there's many other families. So among the things that the critics of the lack of action um, uh, bring up is the fact that um, even Spain's current economic structure, even the fact that some families are really wealthy and others not at all, mm. it can be traced back to these expropriations during and after the war mm. so that a real revision of the Franco regime should also include some kind of um, um, discovery of and 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 fixing of these economic inequalities that have such an illegitimate origin in these expropriations from the civil war and after. Wow, wow,
0: yeah, you're talking real money there, no doubt about that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, which show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about uh, threats to democracy in Spain from a uh, a rebirth of uh, the memory of uh, Francisco Franco. A uh, battle over national identity. And certainly uh, anybody a little familiar with history recognizes that in the late 20s, uh, Hitler was just a fringe radical. He went to jail and was considered, didn't have any real strength. But then it grew and grew and grew. What about this October 7th right-wing rally in Madrid? Tell us about that and why is that significant?
2: Well, this this was a rally um, uh, called on by organized by this right wing party of books. and it surprised many people in Spain and outside of Spain because of the sheer size of the of the crowd, ten thousand people, and uh, because of the rhetoric. So this uh, came, of course, after a year of increasing Spanish nationalist rhetoric um, uh, in, in response to uh, Catalonia's attempt to. Um, to secede from Spain, but the sheer size of the crowd, the um, the slogans which um, the leader Santiago Abascal of Vox literally said, "We should make Spain great again," <laughs> right? His um, it calls to massively deport illegal immigrants or immigrants who had committed some kind of or broken the law in some kind of way. All these things, sort of the 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 combination of um, Old-fashioned right-wing Spanish nationalism, with slogans clearly inspired by by Trump, yes, served as a wake-up call to uh, to commentators and to analysts. Like, wait a second, here is something new going on. The polls have not been super clear, but it looks like uh, Box is polling currently about around five percent or so. The real first test will be the European elections, the, the elections for European Parliament, which will be in May. Um, which have the interesting feature um, that they employ a different electoral system than the regular Spanish parliamentary elections. Regular Spanish parliamentary elections are district-based, just like in the U.S. and just like in England, let's say, where um, if you are below a certain percentage point, you don't really make it into the parliament. What the European parliamentary elections have, uh, by contrast, is a fully representative system so Uh that... If you, as a party, poll 5% of the votes in Spain, you get, you get 5% of the seats as, uh, allotted to Spain in the European Parliament. Wow. This is the way in which Podemos, the left-wing party, sure. in 2014, um, uh, sort of broke out into the open um, by by winning um, five seats in the European elections thanks to this much more representative electoral system. And it seems like books the extreme right-wing party might try to do the same thing uh, come May, so that will be an interesting uh, question: what what happens? What happens? It's also true that the current socialist government of Spain is a minority government;
3: uh-huh. so it was installed uh-huh. in
2: June, but it doesn't have a majority in Parliament. It's therefore unstable, and um, it it's not impossible that the current prime minister will decide to have Spanish parliamentary elections at the same time. As the European elect, as the uh, European and uh, municipal elections in May, so that it might become uh, a kind of a super Sunday with many different elections going on at the same time, which is is interesting and exciting, but also scary because yes. you don't know what's going to happen. Well,
0: you certainly don't. And uh, obviously, it's amazing to me. Make Spain great again, golly gee, what does that remind me of? And no doubt, Trump has uh, encouraged this uh, uh, trend toward uh, authoritarianism and. Uh, you know, revering fascist leaders, uh, as the world knows, our current president just makes things up. In this light, who is this Manuel Fernández Monzon? How dangerous is he? And this new Francoism. And what's your sense of uh, how optimistic you may be? I mean, you and I both love Spain. What What's your sense of uh, optimism or lack thereof?
2: Well, this uh, Monzon, the guy that you cite and that I quote at the end of the article. Yes. Is is in one sense a real French figure and a kind of a picturesque um, uh, person. He's a, he's a, he's a, not quite retired. He's a general in reserve. He's part of a fairly small right wing fringe in the army. Um, the, re- the reason I'd, I quoted him at the end was that because he said um, he said extremely right wing things um, that are demonstrably not true about Franco. So Franco never killed anybody. Everybody was convicted, um, like they should. But um, on Spanish national television, on prime time. So um, hmm. on the one hand, he's a he's a, a French figure, uh, but on the other hand, the fact that he gets to say these things um, so openly to yeah. such a large audience, I think shows to what extent. Um, on the one hand, Spain still is. Um, Strangely tolerant to that kind of discourse, there's sort of Francoist nostalgia. On the other hand, shows to what extent all over Europe and the West that kind of discourse has now again, yes. or is now again becoming um, acceptable when for a long time Normalized. it was really taboo. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, he's, he's a French figure. At the same time, the fact that uh, the Spanish educational system has never fully. Mm. Um, uh, been able to um, tell a story of its own 20th century history that uh, allowed people to understand what happened means that the Spanish public or segments of the Spanish public are quite susceptible to these kinds of representations of the past, right? Um, so, in that sense, um, I think a lot of work still has to be done in terms of education. That said, the resurgence of Fascism, or or ext- at least radical right wing discourse and practice in Europe, has also um, awakened a new anti-fascism, and ah. I think if there's hope, it's there. So um, all over Europe, whether um, it's in Spain or France or Germany or Greece or Holland or, or or for that matter in the United States, mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. um, the the awareness of what's going on, the memory of the 1930s, the alarm at these movements and, and what they're trying to do and say, has awakened the, the um, many, especially young people. And um, here I, I have to put in a plug for the educational work that we do with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, which, yes. as you know, is a nonprofit in New York City that um, is inspired by the anti-fascism during the Spanish Civil War, especially of, of people from the United States. And what we do with Alba is we, we go into, we, te- we work with high school and middle school teachers here in the United States to revive the memory and to, to, to relink what's going on currently with the memory of the 1930s and after. Um, in order to show how important it is to, uh, to, to, to organize um, for anti-fascists to organize in, in the face of a fascist threat, but also how how important it is generally to remember the past and to educate people about what happened and to make them, as as much as possible, critical consumers of news and critical thinkers Mm. and people for whom activism is a natural way of being rather than something something that's limited to clicking Facebook (laughs) posts.
0: (laughs) And the website for that, that Alba, is it still albavalb.org?
2: Yeah, alba-valb.org, exactly.
0: All right, and uh, your book, Sebastian Faber's new book, is uh, "Memory Battles and the Spanish Civil War." Thank you so much. Uh, it's good to have that information. Good to be aware of realities. Thank you so much. My
2: pleasure, Brett.
3: 18 de julio, en el patio de un convento,
1: el pueblo madrileño fundó el quinto regimiento. Anda, jaleo, jaleo, ya se acabó el alboroto y vamos al tiroteo, y vamos al tiroteo.
0: There have been a lot of wars in American history. And, you know, we we celebrate the men and, frankly, to a lesser extent, the women who have been involved in wars. We haven't thought that much about the women's involvement in war. We haven't thought that much about the First World War, which was, of course, not known at the time as the First World War. Uh, But as the Great War, the war over there, uh, sometimes as... Oh, yeah, that one before World War II, but it was was a biggie. It was a brutal war, and a lot of American women went over there. And there's a new book called Heroic Measures, put out by the Wild Rose Press just uh, currently. And our guest today is the author of that book, award-winning author and historian Joanne Power. In this book, she pays homage to the brave women who served the administration anyway, and theoretically our country during the First World War, as members of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps, more than 10,000 American nurses faced violence and inequality on the battlefield in the First World War. Joanne Power, thanks so much for being with us. Why did you write this book? What inspired you to write it?
1: I had read a small paragraph years ago, Probably in some history book somewhere about American nurses who volunteered to go to France in World War One, and I thought, "Wow, I've never heard of these women before." So I, at the time, lived in Washington D.C. and had access to the National Archives and Library of Congress, and so I took myself down. To each of those places and asked for records. And what I found was that even the historians there had not cataloged a lot of the pictures and diaries and letters that they had from these women. So it was a new topic, and I thought, wow, these women were really heroic to have ventured so far from home yes. in an age when very few women went beyond, shall we say, the garden gate.
0: Yes, indeed. And it's it's interesting to try to picture. Now, the U.S. didn't get involved in the Great War until 1917. But I'm trying to paint a picture, if you would please try to, anyway, of what what women's options were back then. What was, I mean, today there's Relative equality. There's still no pay equality and uh, still a great deal of sexism. But uh, in terms, as you say, women didn't really venture far. How big of a leap was it for them to, to join the uh, U.S. Army Nurse Corps? It must have been pretty substantial.
1: Well, yes, it was very heroic of them to volunteer for this, to go to a foreign country thousands of miles away in a war zone um to to volunteer to go to a country whose language they didn't necessarily speak and to go with people uh, other nurses whom they and doctors whom they didn't necessarily know so it was a, a a huge leap of faith and and dedication for them to go abroad to to France and uh, they were uh, contract labor. They signed an wow. agreement with the United States Army to be a part of the army and yet as contract labor, they had no rank uh-huh. and they earned less than an army private
0: Wow that's that is some dedication that's really uh, being out at the vanguard of, of change. It must have been some amazing. Research. What was it like doing the research? How, how long did it take, and how hard was it?
1: Well, uh, when I, I started to do the research, I uh, found only, I was given from the archives, the National Archives and the Library of Congress, only boxes, literally boxes of pictures and letters and things, most of which had not been cataloged at all. And so I found myself then going to Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania, which is the repository for a lot of Army records. And I went there and, and looked at those, too. But I will say that over the years, and I started this research in the 1980s, so it's been a while, um, I, I did find that with the growth of interest in women's studies, that suddenly a lot of uh, historical researchers, women who were interested in uh, women's issues, began to go into a lot of these letters and diaries, and they cataloged a lot of this information. So as years went by, it was easier for me to find more information. And I will say today there are a lot of, children and grandchildren of many of these women who went abroad who have published their mothers and their grandmothers diaries so those first-person accounts are invaluable in writing good historical fiction and i hope everyone will think that that heroic measures is good historical fiction i've researched it until I am absolutely delighted with the way the the, uh, the facts appear in hopefully a, an entertaining and informative manner.
0: Oh, that's got to be most rewarding. Well, I guess the main character, the main character is Gwen Spencer, obviously a fictional character, but the main character, I believe, what was her life before going over there? She's obviously a fictional character, but but how authentic is the character of Gwen Spencer?
1: Well, I know uh, the uh, the city she grew up in, Scranton and Peckville, very well. My uh, parents both came from uh, that area. And so uh, uh, the uh, the streets that she walked, uh, walks with the slate sidewalks and the burning coal dumps, I know very well, even though I myself did not grow up there. But I will say, <clears throat> too, that my, uh, my father's family are German-Americans, and so the description of the problems of uh, uh, the Germans, the German-Americans right. during World War I, is personally very accurate, but also historically very accurate, in the sense that there was a lot of fear that right. German-Americans were conspiring with the Kaiser... And in fact, my grandfather told my father and his siblings, just as uh, the father in in uh, uh, heroic measures does, tell his family, "Do not speak German outside wow. the house. Speak only English." So um, she grows up in this small town, um, and she's she's poor. Um, she's an orphan taken in by mm-hmm. her her aunt, and that was very typical in that day and age um, where where families grouped together to support each other.
3: I
0: wonder, w- would she have been considered a radical feminist at the time, or was, was she fitting into the norm, or, or how exceptional would she have been for somebody like Gwen Spencer to go off to war way across the ocean?
1: Yes, I think that in this Uh, time period, volunteering for the war, whether you were a man or a woman, was considered very heroic and also patriotic. Would she have been uh, considered a feminist by our standards? No, I don't think so. And even perhaps by the standards of the 1910s the 1920s, she would not have been considered a feminist. Um, When she went, she went because she felt she had talents that she could use to the benefit of the men on the front lines. And I think uh, that the majority of the women whose diaries I read and whose letters I read also went for that same purpose. They Only when they got there and they found that they had no rank and that Mm -hmm. many of the orderlies, many of the privates, who were supposed to carry out their orders because these women were in charge of the wards with 300 to 500 men in each ward. When she gave orders, she, of course, expected them to be obeyed, and many times they were not, and this created, created fiction. So to that extent, when a lot of these women came home, they said something must be done about the fact that uh, those who are responsible to uh, nurses in wards must obey the orders. Or men, wounded men, suffer. And so, in the 1920s, those women who remained in the Army Nurse Corps after World War One did press the Army to make. Army nurses equal in rank and pay, and the Army did. And so by the time we see World War II roll around, we have much better circumstances for the American women who join the Corps.
0: The more you learn about that war, the more one can't help but realize it changed everything. It changed everything. It was the, the, I mean, science was kind of worshipped up till then, and it was logical positivism couldn't go wrong, but it was all, it was so horrible, and it was so awful. We're talking on the show today with the author of the new book, Heroic Measures. Uh, our guest is Joanne Power. What about, uh, you know, as we hear about the military today, there's an awful lot of well, sexual assault that goes on. I mean, part of the idea of being in the military is, let's face it, domination and control. And it kind of brings out machismo in men. What was it like? Were there threats of sexual assault? Or what was it like, you know, 100 years ago when your uh, hero of the book, Gwen Spencer, went there with regard to sexual assault?
1: Yeah, I will tell you that I found no no uh, No letters, no diaries that mentioned any sexual assault. Uh, in fact, if anything did occur like that, I think they probably would have, as it does today, yeah, yeah. kept it quiet. Right. But I will say that in the beginning, uh, women were uh, the women who volunteered uh were told that those who would be most likely to be chosen were pardon me the ugly ones Ew. so they wanted uh, they wanted women who were not attractive if they thought that uh, indeed you know a wounded man was <laughs> going to have um uh some kind of uh, romantic aspiration uh-huh. um they, they soon learned that they had to discard that subtext so to speak mm-hmm. they they were short on nurses uh-huh. and uh so the uh the women who went were segregated they had their own quarters um they did eat in the same mess halls with many of the officers and the men. Uh, but um, they were segregated in their sleeping quarters and in, in washing their own uniforms sure. and washing themselves, even.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and great care was taken to preserve their integrity, shall we say. Oh, that's so cool. to that extent, I think you find that those women who went truly had, for the great majority, a uh, stress-free environment in terms of, of uh, sexual intimidation.
0: Well, that's, that's good to hear, anyway. It was still, you know, coming out of the Victorian age, for sure. But talk about stress. Uh, the term shell shock came into existence during the Great War, the First World War. It's now known as post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, what did you find about that? What did your hero, your heroine, Gwen Spencer, find with regard to to shell shock? You know, where men went into these horrible situations and just—is it described at all? It was a horrible uh, uh, feeling, the shell shock.
1: Yes, um, we uh, we in the American Expeditionary Forces designed a number of hospitals specifically to receive those men. Who were shell shocked, or as we call it today, post traumatic stress disorder. Um, They did see that it wasn't just the men who, uh, the soldiers, who had this problem. Uh, There were some of the doctors and some of the nurses as well who absolutely suffered from the the exposure to risk night and day. Um, there, uh, There is evidence that some doctors faced with the task of trying to mend horribly wounded men, yes. simply yeah. lost it, walked away. Yeah. Some of them had to go to the back of the line, so to speak, to rest. There is also evidence that some of the nurses who also saw some of these, these really disastrously wounded men uh, suffered and had to take time out, go to the back of the line. Um, and the, the medical corps understood that a doctor in distress or a nurse in distress needs to rest, needs to go to the back of the line. Was there anyone who was sent home because, right. of the, among the, the medical professionals, who was sent home because of this. I found no evidence mm-hmm. of that. Um, there may be some, of course, but um, these these doctors and nurses uh, really were challenged by the horrific nature of the wounds. And many of the men who were shell-shocked, the soldiers, were sent to hospitals specifically to treat that kind of thing. The treatment there was, of course, uh, primeval. Um, what was it? it well, uh, they they did do uh, straitjackets as they oh. call it.
3: Aye yeah,
1: aye. and um, they did uh, they did tie the men down. Um, they tried to keep them calm, but for the most part, they really did not know how to treat these men other than to calm them to a point where they could ship them down the line back to the French coast mm. and back home again. So many of these men went home and never had any suitable treatment for PTSD.
0: Ooh, I'm sure. It's, you know, when you get in an, a crazy situation like the First World War was, you know, it seems the most sane thing to do is to go crazy a little bit, and, and that's largely what, what shell shock is, I think. And there must have been some, that was certainly a medical challenge to deal with that, and obviously they, they didn't know how to deal with it, but there must have been some other medical advances that being in the uh, U.S. Army Nurse Corps that uh, Gwen Spencer and others may have seen. What medical advances did did she find over there?
1: We were, uh, the Americans, were very instrumental in understanding that speed, uh, in other words, removal of a wounded man from the front line to some kind of surgical care is probably the best kind of medical care you can give to a man. And so they, the Americans developed... Uh, I should say they perfected a system that the French were just beginning to think of in 1917, and it's called the Mobile Surgical Unit. Yes. And um, Gwen Spencer is in one of these units, which follows about a mile in back of an advancing line of soldiers. And this mobile unit was to receive the most severely wounded men, in other words, men who uh, would probably suffer amputations, mm. uh, men who had head, chest, or abdominal wounds. And the job of the mobile surgical unit was to perform primary surgery to stabilize the wounded man and then let him go to the next surgical unit, unit perhaps two or three miles in back of the line and And so on down the the, uh, the line the the other thing that we began to see in World War one that was that a lot of men who, in previous wars, had wounds which might have killed them right. now survive right so for example've um, you've, you've got men who are facially wounded, disfigured right. And here now we know something about skin grafting. So a lot of surgeons begin to experiment with what we now call plastic surgery. Hmm. And, yeah, so... That started um, the first world war, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we were just beginning to understand how to make skin grow in a In a new area, so a lot of men who um might have hidden away completely from life mm. now had an opportunity well. to live with uh, a reconstructed face, not totally of right. course uh, i think I think we see we have seen in boardwalk Empire on t v for example, one man who wore a mask a half-mask on his face because he had been wounded in world war one and many men did wear half-masks or partial masks but um, plastic surgery is one of the big innovations in world war one and the other thing that we begin to understand is that a man who is for example an amputee or who somehow has lost the use of a limb now needs to learn how to live with that disability and so we have the growth of not only physical therapy as we know it today but also occupational therapy and um, many of our soldiers many british soldiers french and and uh... uh german and austrian too um, went home to better lives because we now took time and care to teach them how to live with their disabilities.
0: And the title of the book is Heroic Measures. It's I'm guessing that a lot of the heroic measures were medical heroic measures.
1: Yes, I I think so. As as we use that term today to imply saving a life that seems to be lost, I think that the use of the title, dare I say, is is appropriate because so many of these men, hundreds of thousands of them, might not have been saved had it not been for the enormous devotion of thousands of doctors and nurses uh, on both sides of the conflict.
0: And generally, I got to ask this one last question. Generally, battlefield books are you know traditionally written for men. They don't so much exist for women. Who is the target audience for your book, Heroic Measures?
1: Well, I'm, I am so glad you asked that. I I read a lot of those battle books myself, and I will say that I wrote this book because I think we do need to pay attention to what occurs behind the lines to help to those wound, wounded. So I'm hoping that women will read this book and be inspired by these women's service, but I'm also hoping that men who read these battle books will also take a look at heroic measures and learn something about those who serve the wounded behind the lines. So I'm hoping it's everyone who reads the book
0: And the title of the book is Heroic Measures. It's put out by the Wild Rose Press, uh, and the author is Joanne Power. Uh, Why is it important that we learn about these women?
1: I think it's important to understand that women gave of themselves not only in wartime, but they used their skills to help others, and they did it in an era when we tend to think that women were not very active socially or politically um, or or even in the military. So I I think it is an extraordinary look at a unique group of women who gave their services so that others might live.
0: Wow. Again, the book is Heroic Measures, Thanks so much for being with us, Joanne Power, at the 100th anniversary. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Bert. I've enjoyed it thoroughly.
0: Likewise. It's all about living with war.